and he didn't sink. In fact, when Jesus got out to the boat in the middle of the uh, lake, he said immediately, this is verse 50, immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. These are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, who fed 5,000 people, and then for an encore, he walked on water, proving that he is true God, my dear Christian friend. Now, those of you who are veteran concert goers know that after you've listened to the concert for about 90 minutes and the band, after rocking and rolling, takes their instruments and they put them down and they say, good night, thanks for coming, drive safely. You know that's not the end of the concert. They're waiting for the rhythm of the crowd, for the chanting, for them to pull you back up out on stage so they can sing one more song, and not by accident, it's the chart topper, it's the loudest, it's the one with all the best choreography, and they send everybody home with that encore in high spirits on top of the world. Last week we saw Jesus do the miracle where he fed the 5,000, that was just the men. The women and children meant that Jesus probably fed 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fishes. That's kind of like the point in the concert when everybody's riding high and they say, good night. What's Jesus going to do for an encore? Well, he doesn't do it for the entire crowd of 15 or 20,000 people, but for his disciples, Jesus is going to walk on water. And he's going to do it specifically for a reason to his small group of disciples, he wants to demonstrate to them that he is the great I am, the eternal God, who is present with his people, who is power for his people, protecting his people. He wants to demonstrate once and for all, both of these disciples, that he is king, but he's king on God's terms, not on the world's terms. The reason Jesus needs to demonstrate that he's king on God's terms is because the people who were there after he had done the miracle of feeding the 5,000, well, they thought he was the Messiah and they thought he was the king, but they had morphed Jesus into a king or a Messiah that Jesus was not really a king or a Messiah to be. They saw him multiply the loaves and fishes and they were ready to take him right there, sight unseen, to march him right down to Jerusalem and put him on the throne. Well, there's kind of a political reason for that, because Israel, you know, at the time was occupied by the Romans. The Jews didn't like the Roman occupation, and what they wanted more than anything is for Jesus to be some sort of king, like a political activist, who was going to boot out the Romans and finally restore the kingdom of Israel to the heights that it endured under David. Peace prosperity, the end to poverty, the end to hunger. See, this was the king that Jesus, they wanted Jesus to be. But all the people thought that this is the king that Jesus wanted to be. They wanted Jesus to be a false Christ. That's not who Jesus came to be. The disciples also had expectations of Jesus. In fact, they had confessed the same, but Jesus or the disciples' expectations were also something that were in the vein of inviting him to be a false Christ. The disciples had intellectualized Jesus. You know what that means? I had to look it up. This is a Freudian technique. When you intellectualize something, it means that you're aware of the facts and the details and the realities, 
but it's a defense mechanism that doesn't allow you to embrace the emotions of the circumstance or situation. You're not, you're not aware of the emotions. In other words, they had made Jesus into like a head kind of a God, but they weren't really uh, willing to allow Jesus to touch their heart or their soul. Now, the reason why we know this is because of what Mark says in verse 52. Take a look at this. The disciples, in verse 52, the disciples had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hard. I mean, you read that and you almost scratch your head and say, what do you mean you didn't understand about the loaves? How could you miss it? They were complicit in the miracle. They were the ones who brought the loaves and fishes to God. See, the disciples knew all the facts. Yeah, we set them down in 50s and 100s. Jesus sent it out. We fed 15, 20,000 people. We gathered basketfuls at the end, 12 basketfuls. There were leftovers. They had all the facts down. They had all the details down. What, were they numb? Did you have to pinch them and explain to them that Jesus was God? But the Bible here clearly says they knew the facts. They knew the details but they didn't allow Jesus to touch their heart and soul. They didn't understand the application that he was God standing in their midst and was willing to be their savior too. Well, the disciples had turned Jesus into a false Christ. They had hardened their hearts against him. I wish that were the last time in human history that people had hardened their hearts against God or tried to morph him into something that he was not. But people today want to turn God, Jesus Christ specifically, into some kind of a Christ or a Messiah whom he's not. Sometimes we want to turn Jesus into a political activist. Hey, get rid of those rotten Republicans. Ditch those dirty Democrats. Jesus didn't come for those reasons. Sometimes, like the disciples, we want to intellectualize Jesus. And he fits between our ears because we've read things about him. We can quote verses like nobody else, but Jesus is stuck between our ears as though he doesn't touch our hearts or our souls. Sometimes we want to bring Jesus to mean some sort of Messiah, like he's going to provide unending amounts of gifts and blessings to us, like he's Jesus, the giver of bling. But Jesus didn't come for those reasons. That makes him into a false Messiah. Sometimes we want to make Jesus the permissive God, kind of like Grandma and Grandpa. Oh, they let me do whatever I want to do, and if it's not exactly right, they'll just forgive me. After all, Jesus is going to take everybody to heaven in the end anyway, isn't he? You make Jesus into a false Christ. However, or wherever, we put Jesus into some kind of a box of our own concoction, and of our own creation, and of our own making, this is why Jesus does the miracle to walk on water. As if to say, I am a king, I am a Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that you create. I'm the Messiah that God created. And I came into this world to lay down my life for sin. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but a sick. Until you realize that you're sick with sin, including your own wrong creations of me. That's sin too. I came to save that. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost in sin. This is why Jesus came into the world. And that's why Jesus acts and behaves as he does in our text. You notice that one of the first things that Jesus does in the text, right at the end of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, right at the beginning of our text, this is the opening verse, immediately Jesus made his disciples get in a boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. And then he dismissed the crowd. Why? 
He's dividing and conquering because there were tremendous and terrible temptations here. Look, the crowd is like, you know, worked up into a lather, worked up into a frenzy. Hey, we've got, got, we got to take this guy down to Jerusalem. Well, not only was that a temptation for Jesus, you're great, you're fantastic, we're wanting to make you an earthly king, but that was a temptation for the disciples. They were liable to get swept up in the enthusiasm of all of these, you know, people in the crowd who wanted to take them away. Don't you think that it was a temptation for the disciples to say, you know what, this sounds pretty attractive. If they make Jesus a king down in Jerusalem, I think that I could probably have a cabinet position. The first thing then that Jesus does is he gets the disciples out of there. He didn't need the disciples being brainwashed or tempted by thinking that Jesus came to be an earthly king. That was wrong. So he puts them on a boat and has them sail across the sea. Now remember, they had just fed the 5,000. It's dinner time, 6, 7, 8 o'clock in the evening. The second thing he does is calm the crowd down from their frenzy and their enthusiasm, and he dismisses them and sends them back to their homes. And then the Bible says that Jesus went up to a mountainside to pray in verse 46. Isn't this typical of Jesus when temptation presents itself? Remember when he was tempted by Satan 40 days, 40 nights? The devil offered him the same temptation. I want you to be an earthly Christ. I want you to be a false Christ. I'll give you all these things if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, get away from me, Satan. The Bible says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go to the cross if there's any other way to save the world. To his disciples in the garden, Jesus said, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And there's Jesus on the mountainside to pray. My messianic mission is to do my Father's will. My messianic mission is to be a king, but a king on God's terms. Not a king on these people's terms, not a king on the disciples' terms, but to be a king on God's terms. And so he has quiet time, solitude, just Jesus and God. The disciples weren't there. The people were sent home. And now here is Jesus praying with the Lord to connect to his Father and to connect through prayer in such a way as to say, I need to remind myself and God needs to remind me why I came into this world. When we pick up the narrative a little bit later, this is verse 47 and 48. Evening came, and the boat, the disciples' boat now, was in the middle of the lake, and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And then the Bible says it's about the fourth watch of the night. It's important that you keep the time in your mind. You know when the fourth watch of the night is? That's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Remember, just in a verse and a half here, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray, presumably not just like a 15 second and done, but he was in prayer for three, four, five hours. And the disciples who had been dismissed at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night perhaps, they had been sailing across the Sea of Galilee and straining against a headwind in their face for probably six hours or more and they still haven't made it to their destination. It's night, it's pitch black, it's three, four in the morning. They're in the middle of the lake still, and they still got halfway across the lake to go. 
And now Jesus has come down the mountain from his prayer, and he's standing on the shore, and he sees his disciples straining, flailing, in the dark, having been up all night, physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, emotionally exhausted, spiritually exhausted, because their king and their lord and their maker wasn't with them. And so Jesus decides, because he knows that their hearts were hardened and they had totally missed the point of why he did the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, I think it's time for an encore. And Jesus walks to them in the middle of the Sea of Galilee to these disciples who had just spent six hours rowing a boat with 12 people into a wind and they only make it to the middle of the lake Jesus just walks right out to them with the ease of, you know, those, those airport walkways, those moving walkways, as though they're, you're, you're unencumbered and unhindered. Jesus just walks right to them. And about the time that Jesus reaches the spot where their boat is in the middle of the lake, here are these people sweating to death, trying to get the boat to the other side of the lake and they're weary, and it's dark. All you've got is the stars and the moon. That's all you can see. You don't expect to see somebody walking. And they look, and they're scared to death. What is that thing? Moving on the water. The Bible says they were terrified. It's a ghost. And that's when Jesus provides them these words of comfort. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And with those words, it is I. I am. Jesus is making a connection between I am God and the I am that God said to Moses in the Old Testament. Remember when Moses asked the question, Who am I supposed to say sent me? I am who I am. The living God, Jehovah. Here is Jesus staking his claim yet again to the fact that he is God. He is divine, and he is with his disciples. Then take courage, and don't be afraid, because if the living God is with you, walking on water to demonstrate his power and his presence, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, then there really is nothing that you need to fear. You see, Jesus was demonstrating to his disciples that he was the Messiah, but he was the Messiah on God's terms. He was not to be intellectualized. He was not to be a political advisor. He came to save people from their sins. And the sins the disciples had recently been guilty of is what? Becoming numb to all of Jesus' miracles? If they thought that feeding the 5,000 was only too yawn-worthy, well, they were amazed at what Jesus was doing now. Walking on the water in the middle of the night into a headwind, catching up. It took them six hours to get as far as they went. It took Jesus just a matter of moments to get to where they were. And the Bible says that they were amazed at seeing Jesus walk on the water. And now Jesus had demonstrated to them, finally, I'm the same God who did this miracle to multiply loaves and fishes. I can walk on water. This is the God you need. This is the Messiah you need to go to the cross and lay down life for sin. That's why God sent me into this world. I'm a king.
Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when Jesus went to the cross, they put INRI, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the same crowd, at least elements and members of the crowd, who wanted to make him king here and move him down to Jerusalem, were members of the same crowd and said, well, he claims to be a king, and if he's a king, he's no friend of, of Caesar's. But Jesus was a king, in fact. And when he was hanging on the cross, he does the thing that only a king can do, only God's kind of a king can do. He wins. That's what a king does. He defeats enemies. And the great I am, who was with Moses, and who was with Joshua, and who was with Gideon, and who demonstrated his presence in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, and who demonstrated his presence at the feeding of the 5,000, and now walking on water in the middle of the night is the king who, when he laid down his life, defeats sins and defeated Satan. And then gave himself up unto in death, only to take his life back again. And if you want to know what Jesus is going to do for an encore, when he took his life back again, the encore is, he will raise your bodies too. Because I live, the Bible says, you also will live. How should we receive this king? Well, receive him the same way the disciples did with amazement and awe. Receive him with worship when they welcomed Jesus into the boat. If they had been numb or blind or intellectualized or compartmentalized Jesus because of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, well, they hadn't compartmentalized Jesus any longer. Those weary, worn disciples praised Jesus at the amazement of this miracle and they worshipped him as their king. Friends, we don't need to twist Jesus into he's true man but not true God, true God but not true man, or some sort of a hybrid in between. We don't need to morph Jesus into some sort of a false Christ because God, he is the great I am and the king on God's terms. And because he's king on God's terms, that means he is exactly the king we need. Amen.